the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Matt Kane Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. Today, I'm going to be chatting to Jill Nalder, the real-life friend of Russell T. Davis, who inspired his hit TV drama, It's a Sin. Originally from South Wales, Jill has performed in several West End musicals and was one of the founders of HIV AIDS charity West End Cares. She's had quite a life and luckily for us has just written her memoir, Love from the Pink Palace. Stay right there because I'll be speaking to Jill in just a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am delighted to be chatting to Jill Nalder. Jill, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Hello. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on your book. I absolutely loved it. Thank you. I'd love to know how did it come about? Had you always wanted to write a memoir, or was it kickstarted by the success of It's a Sin? Well, it was totally kick-started by the success of It's a Sin. I had never really, other than, you know, conversations when you have with friends and somebody you goes, oh, you should write, write a book, book, which everyone in the entire country has. <laughs> I had never really thought of doing it, but because of It's a Sin and because I was approached by the lovely publishers to write it and eventually after a few conversations with my agent and things like that and a little bit of stress I have to admit because it's not something I'd ever done before I decided it was a challenge I should try and uh, you know rise to and and a lot of people also said about the story itself you know it's a story that needs telling and that really did inspire me to, to give it a go because I thought you know what those lovely men that lost their lives I, I do know some things that might interest the reader. So Well, I and know. I have to say, I completely agree with you that it's a story that needs telling. I was surprised at how many people said to me after It's a Sin, I loved it, but I had no idea any of that happened. Yeah, uh, yeah that's you what know, we found. Which is why it needs telling. But what's going on here? Why did people... Because like, those of us who were there, we're like, we knew everything that happened. How could you not have had any idea? I don't know. I don't know what we did as a, as a whole generation we must have not spoken about it a lot or we must have decided you know like um i don't know maybe like previous generations did with i know it's a different kind of thing but a lot of people stop talking about world war ii stuff like that and you can you find out throughout your entire life things that happen you think i never knew that happened when you're looking back on your parents history or your grandparents history so it is maybe i think that you know people moved on and also of course treatments came out which meant that people were not facing the same death centers they faced in the 80s and and they sort of put it in a in a box in their mind somewhere and and moved in, on to living. Well, I wonder whether, as a kind of community, we were so traumatised by it that when you've come out the other side or you're starting to emerge, the last thing you want to do is go back and explore that experience again. I think yes. I seem to remember reading somewhere that Holocaust dramas only started to appear a couple of decades after the Holocaust. I'm sure, I'm sure. And, I mean, that is the ultimate in trauma isn't it you know because you, you and i think everybody does that with 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 trauma they try to move on and they don't want to relive it not in detail i mean you never forget those boys i never forget them but i always remember when we're talking or it's somebody's birthday you always say oh, that was so and so's birthday and you you remember them but you don't 
go back over all the details. And what about the mainstream, people in mainstream society who were saying, you know, I, I didn't know any of that happened. Um, they were there. Is it just that gay men in our community, we weren't as integrated and accepted? Or do you think... I think... <sighs> I really think, yes, definitely not as integrated and accepted. That's a definite fact. But also people who who were around and didn't think it ever applied to them. Because a lot of people thought, well, that's not going to be me. That's just gay men, you know. Or maybe, you know, it's in other countries. People yeah. don't bother about it. It's all in America. So don't worry about it. It's not going to happen here. And so I think that a lot of people just... It didn't touch them. And a lot of people didn't care about gays, did they? a lot gays, of people did didn't they? care. You know, and that's the truth, isn't it, Matt? That's, that is the truth. A lot of people thought, well, it's just gay men in that in that horrible, stigmatising way that, that was definitely around in the 80s. And even those who didn't mean to stigmatise just sort of put it into that community and didn't worry about it. We were so... Con- people were so conditioned to think of gay men as other and yes. not part of... See, I would love to know... Um, what happened with you? Because obviously you grew up in Neath and, and you talk about your story in the book, but there was such... Homophobia was so kind of casual and so ingrained in society in those days. Or I remember it being in the late 70s, early 80s when I started growing up. I'm always fascinated when I meet allies because I think, what happened for you to not go along with everything you were told about gay men? And why did you find a point of engagement and emotional connection? Well, I just loved my gay friends. That's the first thing. Um, And I think we had this marvellous community within our youth theatre and our local theatre and that opened my eyes so much to not just I mean it was it was a theatrical community and so obviously it wasn't all gay men but it was a very open-minded community and and I had friends who were accepting of themselves by the age of 15 and 16 they couldn't tell their parents they were gay in in lots and lots of cases but in our sort of tiny world it was a very open well Russell Davis described it as a safe space yeah and and that's a sort of you know, a modern phrase, isn't it? A safe space. But it was a safe space for young gay boys to express themselves. And you also, in the book, describe your family as being more liberal and tolerant than the average family in those days. Well, it's very possible that, because my family, my mum was a very open-minded person and my dad had to go along with my mum a lot of the times um, because, you know, she was generally a very educated and accepting person and both my parents were very accepting and and didn't really judge people so I grew up with that environment or at least I felt I I did I felt that we you know I wasn't judged my friends were accepted and so I went along with all of that of course I I thought that you know but I knew because other other boys were keeping that secret from their parents so I felt oh, my parents are very open-minded in in all of this I, I never felt shy to talk about stuff or you know so so I think that obviously helps as well you know just it's a pathway and it kind of grows doesn't it it just doesn't all happen overnight it, no absolutely it just... it's interesting though because most people who feel an affinity with other minority groups have come from some minority group themselves or experience the feeling of being an outsider or excluded and you just seem to have this emotional well inside you well i wonder you know i don't i didn't feel i felt excluded in any way but definitely when i found the theater i felt like that was a place that i felt like home i thought that was where oh i i really feel comfortable in this environment i love it and so that maybe opened a door because i think i was I wasn't like incredibly 
bold person. I was quite a shy person, quite sort of studious when I was in school. I wanted to do well in school, and that wasn't too much of a swat. Don't make me into a swat. But, you know, I, I, <laughs> Until um, you met the girls in the theatre the group. Gays, and then I did. I had thought, oh my gosh, this is just fabulous. You know, I just kind of wanted that a way that people express themselves which was so all-encompassing and lovely it wasn't judged on whether anybody fancied you it wasn't judged on you know how, how you looked or how you felt it was just your personality and and we all had such a lot and the sense of humor i mean it's got to be a, yeah. a, a you know i think gay men and i might be stretching this to i hope that doesn't upset anybody but i think gay men have the best sense of humor you know, You're not I know upsetting this. me. I'm loving that. <laughs> no, but you know, I just do, and I just like that camp sense of humour. I like that fun. I like the way it is. I think there's a great joie de vivre amongst the gay community. It's because and we're desperate to experience joy. Because lots of us had to keep it suppressed for I, so long. And it, and you know what? It it probably is linked to that. But you've got to have it in your in the way that people share the same sense of humour. That they have the fun. You know, and I think. It's brilliant, and I loved it. As a child, I loved it, or as a teenager, I loved it. And as a now postmenopausal woman, <laughs> sorry, it's true, I still love it. Don't <laughs> apologise. And actually, you said something um, a few paragraphs back. You said something I'm going to pick up on, which is really interesting. You said, I was saying, how did you have this affinity? Um, why did you connect so much? And you said something about... I wouldn't be judged on my appearance. So in those days, women were primarily judged on their appearance and whether or not they were going to be a nice, decorative, ornamental wife. Well, Am I, I think right there is a little bit of that in it, you know, and I've never been, like, the very glamorous sort of, you know, first-choice glamorous dolly bird, so, um, in the, in the old-fashioned phrase. So I, um, I think maybe a chance for me to be myself as well, you know, and not be judged on, on that kind of thing, which was very judgmental, I think, in the 70s in, and... I've been moving into the 80s. I mean, let's be fair, we're all judged. People are all judged on how they look in many ways, but things are changing on that score as well, aren't they? So. Uh, people often say to me, particularly straight women, the thing they like about being around gays is um, that the, the sense of the fear of judgment isn't there because they've been judged so much. You all want a place away from judgment. I think so. I think everybody wants that. And now you've said that. And you say other women have said that. And, and I think it's true. You know, you, you know for a fact that you're, you are who you are. And if, if people like you, they like you. you. You're not being judged on anything else. Although I'm sure, I'm sure that gay men uh, in general, they want you to turn up looking good. <laughs> they don't want any... <laughs> I've had many a gay men say, you can't go out in that. Well, you are looking <laughs> ravishing today. And I'm sitting here in rubbish shorts and t-shirts. No, so. you look gorgeous. <laughs> anyway, there's loads I want to talk to you okay. about. We're going to come back in a few minutes. We're just going to take a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Matt Kane meets, and today I'm delighted to be chatting to Jill Nalda, the real life Jill from It's a Sin. Jill, we were talking before the break about growing up in Wales, how you became an ally. You met all these gays at the local youth theatre. Tell us about moving to London in your late teens to go to drama school. Was it like moving up a gear it's with your, the same it's spirit? Totally, absolutely <laughs> was because it was, and it, it, it was 
is brilliant, really, because, of course, then you, you're coming into what you hope is the real world of theatre and you're in drama school and, and you know, it's an escalation, really, of... I just think we, we had a unique time in our youth theatre because a lot of our youth theatre went into the, the business and are pretty successful as, as either, you know, jobbing actors or it's quite a few celebrities, actually, because we had Michael Sheen, uh, who's a Love little bit Michael younger Sheen. than me. He's gorgeous and, and wonderful. And Catherine Zeta-Jones was in our youth arts company. So it was a it, it encouraged a lot of people to go into the business and there's a lot of people still working today. So I, I felt like I had friends. And then we all encompassed everybody's new friends and so it was it was a fantastic time and i've got to ask about the pink palace Hooray. but i'm allowed to because it's in the title of your book yeah, yeah, yeah. so we all saw russell t davis's version of the pink palace yeah. in it's a sin you talk about the real pink palace in your brilliant memoir uh-huh. um where exactly was it and it's, how long did you live there for we lived there for about four years um, we had a few changes of people coming in and out and, and living there with us and, you know, people coming to stay over and that kind of thing. It's actually in, fabulous. It's just off Hampstead. So it's just a, a lovely area of London. So it's not far from Hampstead Heath. And we found it by chance. Uh, a friend of ours, Martin Ellis, who was from the Youth Theatre, he was looking through the Ham and High, looking for somewhere to live, and he found it. And, and there it was, you know, and we thought, oh, it's cheap, it's not going to be much. And, of course, when we walked in, it was just quite beautiful. And I don't know why they let students live in somewhere that looks... Because it had the chandeliers and it was pink. That's the thing, is why we called it the Pink Palace is because a lot... I know Russell didn't have so much actual pink in its scene. But you did. But there was a lot of actual pink <laughs> because there was these massive Draylon sofas and sort of uh, flock dark pink oh. walls and it had been decorated... I don't know. It's a unique style of its own, really. I can't say what style. It was palatial <laughs> and gorgeous. And we had all these lovely, lovely silver service cutlery and we were shrieking. I mean, well, yeah, I can a lot imagine. Of people, and uh, you were saying la to each other. We Russell lifted that la. from you guys. He did. He lifted a lot of things. And and amazingly, people have loved that. They've all gone la and people meet me and say that and relive it all now because it really sort of, I mean, who would ever have thought who would ever have thought that the name the Pink Palace would have caught on in such a way and that La would catch on and be like fundraising and it's it's just a snowball of amazing things that happened out of, out of It's a Sin, I think. And you had, um, I'm going from the memoir now rather than the TV show, you okay. had all these gay actor friends um, in your world and after you left drama school, people started working. Yes. You worked in the business, cabaret and then yes. the West End from the yes. start. So what I'd love to to know is how accepting an industry was theatre for gay actors because even though you're talking about the safe space when you went to youth theatre presumably this was a time when gay actors couldn't be out and couldn't talk it's an interesting question that i think it's a very interesting question because within a community of course it it is accepted i think to the level of where you are in, to the public to the world out there because of course in ensembles in shows with dancers 
I never saw any homophobia amongst anything like that in, in, in ensembles or in shows in general, gay actors. But once somebody sort of, I don't know, got into the big time where they might be making a film or doing yeah. something in television, then the time comes when I think agents would say, well, it's not a good idea to maybe be too open about everything, you know. So I don't think people, when they had that kind of pressure, were open at all. People would keep their sexuality very much un undercover. And obviously when the HIV AIDS crisis was ignited, hysteria was everywhere and, then, and people were yeah. even more frightened of gay men. I would love to talk to you about the moment when you first heard about AIDS. You talk in the book about reading a short article in 1982. I did. Just when you were about to go into a class at Pineapple yeah, Dance Studios. I did. I had picked up a little newspaper or a little article or a magazine or something. Couldn't couldn't begin to remember what magazine it was, but I remember reading something about an, a, 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 a gay sort of illness, a gay illness in America, and, and it caught my eye because it was a gay illness and you know and it's it's just a weird thing to write actually you just see it in the paper you think what is that and uh, and i you know have this like moment a sort of flash of worry because people you know and love and care for are gay and I thought, what, what is it and then it was a, a, like i said about before it was a gradual increase of knowledge it mm -hmm. was just i forgot about that and and but obviously i didn't completely forget about it because i remember reading the article and then of course somebody else tells you something else maybe even a month later and you think I remember reading that now. And so the whole thing builds up and then all of a sudden it's actually, what is this? Something's going on. One thing I found fascinating about the book is you really bring to mind that what it was like at that time. So, for example, the fear, but also the idea that the disease wasn't real, that it was made up just to frighten gay men. Also, that the idea that it had been chemically engineered on purpose to wipe us out. And then nobody knew how it was spread. So no. if, even if you wanted to protect yourself, you wouldn't know how to. No, no, absolutely. So, And if you think now of the parallels with COVID and how people, or the information you get and you think, is that right? And, you know, what is this virus? And 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 how that has come and where we are today and compared to where we were two years ago or three years ago so the you know you can i think you'd have to magnify that by oh, i don't know 50 times 100 for the confusion and the lack of information that we had because there was nothing online there was no real information you know just people like the terence higgins trust and you know, the uh, pink papers and things like that, that were getting any information out. Or sometimes in a club, you might see something, you'd hear people talking and you'd hear people. But in our little group, it was all, you know, don't don't involve yourself sexually with anyone from America. Don't yeah. have sex with yeah, anyone yeah. from America. And suddenly it's as if someone from America was the only danger that you had, you know, because that's where we thought it was. But... So you're picking up all these snippets here, there and everywhere and trying to build a picture. And in the meantime, there's this hysteria in the mainstream media. You said something in the book, you said something like, in the 80s, we all accepted the vilification of gay men as normal. Yes, I think that. And I remember writing that. I remember thinking about that and writing it and, and thinking that that is the truth. You you didn't You accepted that secrecy and you accepted that so-called there was a an aspect of the straight community that would always think badly of gay men and you could expect to be put 
put down or spoken oh, uh, in yeah. a derogatory way. Yeah. And so, you know, and not by everybody, of course not by everybody. And of course there was, people loved the the figures that were on our television at the time. If you think of, of Larry Grayson, if John you think Inman. of Frankie Howard, John Inman, they were gorgeous and well-loved people. But there was always just that little thing of making fun in a way or just, you know, that, oh, they're, they're one of those, you know, a bit one of those. We did all accept it as normal. Yeah. I can remember in the 80s, if somebody gave you kind of a microaggression or a gentle ribbing, you'd be pathetically grateful that they weren't out and out turning yeah, into that you. people weren't being horrible. And you'd also have a continual fear of being, uh, you know, out late at night where somebody might pick on. Uh, uh, you know, a friend or a gay man or, you know, gay men. Gay men have experienced a little bit, I think, of what women experience in having to be very, very careful when you walk in the streets late at night because, you know, you could be picked on or you could be uh, um, attacked for your sexuality or even a suggestion of your sexuality. Yeah. Just ribbed or made to feel fear. Yeah. Maybe nothing yeah, was yeah, ever yeah, going to yeah, happen, yeah. but you could be picked on. You also talk in the book, you quote some of the headlines in the press and the letter from a reader that said, bury homosexuals in a pit and pour quicklime on them. You know, um, I mean, we you were used that? to hearing this kind of thing about ourselves. I mean, but we? that's extreme. I, I chose that one because I thought that, even though there was gay plague headlines for days, I mean, there was all that going on, AIDS is the wrath of God, AIDS is a gay plague, you know, people have inflicted AIDS on, brought AIDS to the country. It was never, it was never with compassion. It was always brought AIDS. And that particular one, which I found as a, in hindsight, as, as one of the worst examples, and then I thought, do you know what, that is so extreme and horrible that anyone would dare to write that is, is a shock, I think. Okay, Jill, there's loads I want to ask you about. We're just going to take a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am chuffed to bits to be chatting to Jill Nalder, the real life Jill from It's a Sin, who's now written her memoir. And in your memoir, Jill, you describe visiting and volunteering on AIDS wards. You talk about people being terrified, doctors and nurses not wanting to touch patients. Were you ever scared? Well, I don't think I was. I was. <laughs> Just, I, I suppose, on edge sometimes. You you know, you just think, careful, to be careful. You don't quite know what you're dealing with. I don't remember feeling a horrible fear for myself, but I remember feeling horrible fear for my friends because, of course, you know, it, it didn't seem like at that time that many women were infected. And so, obviously, you're more concerned for your friends than you are for yourself. So I didn't have that fear. Uh, initially and then obviously you say about then we discovered about you know it was sexual transmission but also blood transmission so everybody would yeah. be very wary if someone was bleeding profusely or something like that so rather than fear I would have an awareness I think I don't remember terror for myself I was also struck in the book by the secrecy around everything. Patients giving fake names. Also, you talk about having to keep a secret for so many friends about who told you about their diagnoses, but often from each other. They hadn't told each no. other. And that was the hardest of that was harder secrets because that's a weird secret when you've when you're keeping a secret from a friend and another friend who is a good friend, but you'd think, okay, nobody they haven't told each other, so I can't say anything. So it became like a little sort of a, a quagmire of 
have I said the right thing here and have I done the right thing there? And I'm sure I wasn't the only person going through that because people tended, if they did, sometimes I think uh, someone felt so desperate they had to tell someone, you know, and it seemed like my friends told me, but I'm sure that that, that was happening around the country in, in many ways. But I do think that it's uh, it's a very strange situation. It's a very strange balance Absolutely. of having a secret and then keeping it from somebody else that you know will only be caring. You know, they'll only want to, to help, but just don't want to know, you know, don't want to say anything. Also, can I just say for anybody listening, obviously you go into the horrors of AIDS in the book, but you also, one of the things I love about it, you talk about all the fun you had with your friends. You talk about the highs oh. in between the lows. And what I would love to do, if it's possible to talk about each one in a few lines, if I say their names, could you just describe them briefly and bring their memory okay. back to yeah, life? Yeah, I, I will, I will. So let's start, tell us about Jay from Patalba. Well, Jay, who is, a, he was a musical director who is absolutely inspirational musical director director full of talent loves a party and takes control of a room when he walks into the room you'll know he's in the room oh, jay okay. is musical director of sister act oh. so he's just going on tour so he is still with us how about bringing alive derek from the small village in scotland okay so he pretended to have cancer for a long time yeah, didn't he? yeah he did yes and um he was a live wire absolutely um anarchic at times he was very funny very witty and once he got a laugh you couldn't stop him so once he got one laugh you knew he would be on a roll and there was no stopping him and yes he brought joy to everyone everybody one of my favorite characters from the book john from liverpool who you called sister who is also still alive he's one person who's still with us he is talented and sensitive and you know just a gorgeous person a gentle soul and also likes a bit of fun also good good yeah sister yeah we discovered that we we had a lot of things in common and um, also a brilliant musician and the one you were closest to out of all of them who didn't make it juan from venezuela yeah and juan was again seems like i'm attracted to the people that are you know very he's a big personality uh very warm all-encompassing south american give you a big hug, you know, very tactile, very, um, yeah, just that generous, generous-hearted. Again, you'd know he was in the room and, and everybody loved him. And one of the most moving stories is actually Dursley from the Isle of Man because he clings on for ages and am I right in thinking he was closest to the lead character of It's a Sin, Richie, played by Ollie Alexander? Well, there was there was aspects of I think I think aspects of all the boys because Russell knew and knows all those guys and knows those boys, and so he he took aspects. But he very much he knew Dursley. He he was very aware of Dursley's courage and fight in in you know his his journey through HIV and AIDS. And there was a very particular scene where he the Richie. Uh, it has the Dalek scene, you know, with the, Doctor Who. That was a direct tribute to Dursley because Dursley was in Doctor Who. And uh, and also, I think, the tenacity of the character Richie, his will to fight, his will to think, I can beat this, was also a, very much a tribute to Dursley, who did everything in yeah, his power yeah. to, to beat that virus and knew in his head that there was something around the corner. I mean, he would always say, there's something around the corner. You know, I just have to, 
I just have to fight long enough and I'll be fine. Well, and that's one of the... I mean, I was inspired by his fight. I mean, some of the stories where he's on the brink and then he comes back... All the time. ...are amazing. <laughs> but then the, the tragedy of him missing the arrival of combination yeah, drug therapy yeah. by... It's, it's, it's so close. It's just... Just, I hate to think about it. It was not even a year, to be uh. fair. It wasn't even a year, but um, but he did miss it, and and they knew it was around the corner. But of course, they had they had the protease inhibitors, they had the other things like AZT, and they had the new the protease inhibitors were the new drugs. They hadn't put them in combination until a certain conference, and and that somebody had. They obviously were doing it, and it must have been in trials, but the results of those trials hadn't come out until it came out in that Vancouver conference, and it was just a bit too late. But other people who were, I would say, on the same sort of track as Dursley in their health journey did manage to get it and, and, and are alive today. Absolutely. And it's interesting actually hearing you talk about that because one thing that I took from the book is we quite often in shorthand talk about the HIV AIDS crisis of the 80s. And one thing you document is that the deaths were going on till yes, well into the mid 90s. Well into the mid 90s and certainly the early 90s. I mean, there was no treatment in the early 90s. Yeah, I think it's, it, it begins to be, you know, you start to hear hopeful information like 95, but of course that doesn't come onto the market. It's like as you'll notice, you know, when you hear something, you see brilliant things coming onto the market linked to cancer drugs and you think okay that's brilliant but then you find it always says at the end you know of a little article this may not be available yeah, for a yeah, year or so yeah. so it was the same thing you know it wasn't available to come onto the market although I think a lot of people because it did such a remarkable thing it, it then came out pretty quickly into the world but you know, even then, of course, it depends on the country you live in. It depends on the health service. It depends on your doctor. It depends on um, how how your body has reacted, what illness you've had. If you if you've had brain damage in any way, that's not reparable uh, by right. triple combination. You know that that wouldn't be easily repaired. A lot of people had had a lot of sight problems. That sort of stuff didn't recover. Your immune system could make a recovery, but some damage was permanent. And, you know, during this period when you're in the 90s, I think, when you're doing all the volunteering on the AIDS wars and helping your friends, around the same time you and some of your friends and colleagues from the West End set up the charity West End Cares, based on the template of Broadway Cares. Yes. The entire industry got behind it, didn't it? I loved reading about that in oh, the Oh, did you? I love it as well, because I think it's it just such a... It was a, for us, it was... First of all, it was doing something. It yeah. was doing something to help, which I think was very good for us all mentally. Uh, and, you know, mental health issues and, and people had stress and, and you know, did, did make you think you were doing something. It also led to huge amounts of fun. I mean, we had a ball. We did late night cabarets all over the place. We did every possible thing. And, I, and the whole of the West End, in my mind, it's the whole of the West End. Even people, of course, because sometimes people would say, quite rightly so, do we always have to be fundraising for AIDS? And of course, people have other issues in their lives. And, you know, if, you're, if your mum has cancer or if you have cancer or anything else, you know, that, you know, MS, all these illnesses that people have to challenge and fight. But of course, we were just fundraising for AIDS. It didn't. We would always help if anybody else was fundraising. But our charity was set up to fight HIV and AIDS. Well, but. and you did raise a lot of money. I mean, how does it feel? You know, because that wasn't necessarily an element of the TV series. This is a big no, element of the book. It's a big element for me because it's a big part of my life and and what we achieved and what 
you know we set up and achieved and what Broadway is still achieving I mean Broadway Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS because it's very different in America because people have to uh, fund health care in a different yeah. way so you know there's still a lot of issues around people I, I don't know for a fact but I can imagine how much it costs to try and fund yourself for some of the treatments for HIV and AIDS which are you know they're, they're um, new treatments in a lot of the time because things are still progressing so they're expensive and at our time it was a research you know there's money for research or money for people who were on hard times there was a lot of people struggling to pay their bills and crusade who we worked alongside had the hardship fund and that was going directly to people so that inspired us because we thought great that's going straight to people who actually need the money Jill, everything you're saying is inspiring me. <laughs> I want to keep going, but we need to take a quick break. Okay. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am chatting to Jill Nalda. Jill, looking back over the 80s and the 90s to write this book. It strikes me, you hinted on this right at the beginning of our chat, that you, you know, the trauma that everybody went through, but you personally went through a major trauma. Do you think it, caring for all these friends, seeing these friends die in such horrible circumstances, do you think, how did the trauma take its toll on you and did you have any counselling or did anybody help you? Actually, I did. I went after, I, 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 after Dursley died, I did go for counselling. There was that had some fantastic advice from people on the sort of front line in the hospital itself, and I did have some, you know, this strangest thing because I did have some counselling. But during my counselling, which I was going through once a week, it was just um, you know, like how to deal with grief really. And and the woman was lovely, and you know, giving giving strategies, which I would I would say to anybody, you know, it's 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 a great thing if you find someone that you're in tune with and they can help you through any sort of because you know, eventually you have to deal with grief and loss on your on your own. You have to come to some, you have to come to some I don't know recovery in your own head. But certainly little things that people help you along the way with, and 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 an, an amazing woman came into the hospital ward and actually sat with me one night when when you know um my friend Dursley was unconscious and she gave some lovely thoughts you know about what it what what you need for yourself and so so I did have help I did but in the middle of, in the middle of my counseling my father fell ill so I had um. to go to Wales to look after my dad for a bit with my mum and help my family out so I I stopped my counseling sooner than I would have if that hadn't have happened but I would, yeah, on that kind of thing. So even, but even the the things that I learned, I still think through and carry them through to say to other people if you think, okay, it might help if you do such and such a thing or... You know, know. talking about all this time you've spent helping others and you mention your dad as well, do you think because you spent so much time helping others, do you think you ever missed out on anything in your own personal life, um, emotional life? You know, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not been a person who's been lucky in love, I mean, but I don't think that's a fault of anybody or anything, I think that's just the way my life has gone. I don't think that, you know, you know, every, people would always go and help their parents, wouldn't they? So you... Well, some people, I mean, you say that well, very modestly, some people don't bother. No, no, I suppose not, but I mean, there, there will be, but a majority of people in, in those relationships, I, I think my life's been amazing. I think I've had a lot of love, a lot of fun. You know, I wouldn't want those emotional losses if the world was a different world. But 
you can grow and learn a lot through that that stuff as well you know and so I tell you what it does though it doesn't having one loss a, a big loss doesn't make you feel stronger for another loss I think initially it makes you feel a bit weaker because you think oh, I can't take another loss because I've had this That's so interesting. I don't think that I suppose you, you have strategies in your mind that that will help you to get through it. But I think you feel fear for those you love around you once you lose somebody. You keep wanting to check that everyone's okay, you know, and, and I think that it, it puts you on fragile ground or something like that. that well, I it's feel interesting. A bit like that. Yeah, and it's interesting talking about how much love there was in your life. I mean, I'm, I wonder whether sometimes the impetus for people to go out and prioritise finding romantic love is when there's a lack of love in their lives and actually what you're describing is a life that was so full of love from various different I think I might be a little bit strange like that but I think it's true I think I've got so much uh, you know I've had so much love in my life that I, I don't feel I don't feel a, a lack of that or a loneliness or anything like that I feel like I've, I've been very lucky actually I feel like my life's been very enriched by what I've experienced but of course you know you wouldn't if you think back and you think what the boys have lost that's I know. what I think. Now, I'm sure it was in Woman's Hour when when you said, I can't remember what the question would have been, something about how much you gave to these gay men, and you said something like, quick as a flash, I was enriched by having them in my life. It wasn't a one-way yeah. thing. Oh, OK. Well, I, I, I said that, and, and I, I, I second that again. I say it again. I, my life's been very enriched by by all kinds of people in my life, but I think that that... I think if you have a good, I mean, you, you, you hate to just generalise and say your friend has to be a gay man, but I have an affinity with that and I've had that all my life and I feel like I have some of the most incredible friends and I had some of the most incredible friends and I wouldn't swap that. If given my life again, I wouldn't want to not have them in my life for any other reason, you know, so I wouldn't swap that time, but I would love them to be around. Well, and the ones that aren't around, the ones that sadly aren't with us, particularly people like Juan, who you describe as the one you were closest to, how do you keep their memories alive now when it's so long after well now of course i am seriously well, <laughs> keeping their memory alive you know Sorry, and i think yeah. they would be thinking oh my god she's never shutting up about us now but um <laughs> but uh, so so just as i said to you when we were chatting before we started you know it's just like on birthdays and anniversaries and shows and you know when you've been in a show something like les miserables which Juan was in, in in Paris and so that our joint memories of uh, people remember as well you know there's other people because of course you are still part of a community that knew and remembered and even though I I'm writing about my closest and nearest and dearest I always helping other people remember their partners or friends that they lost you know and other people have come forward and said remember so and so remember so and so and you know I mean lovely David Raven I don't know if you know David Raven aka Maisie Trollette oh yes and yes, the Brighton yes, Gay yes. Scene. of course he lost his partner way way back in the 80s or he passed away in the 90s and of course he's never far from our minds we always mention him and you know mentioning people that that's how everybody keeps people alive isn't it the, the work they've done the life they've led the memories they've given you know and and people like Dursley of course are on the screen you know they, they've made television series and stuff like that so so their memory is there for people 
And you talk about memories coming back. In the book, you talk about memories coming back when we started going through the um, COVID pandemic. You mentioned this again right at the beginning of our interview, but there's something you say in the book, you say something like, um, a big difference and one I've never, I will never understand was that there were no headlines for COVID um, claiming it was the wrath of God. Yes, I, I and I, I've yet to see a headline about blaming, you know, saying that COVID is a punishment. So people alluded to AIDS that it was a punishment for the way people behave, the way a gay lifestyle is, or you know something you've done. And it's not only gay men who who had that, like that stigma, because obviously drug people, drug users, you know, sex workers, stuff like that as well. You, it's, you you get the blame for it rather than the care, and I think that's you know that's a I I feel that's a valid point. You know, I think it's. Um, it's when people want to feel that, okay, you've brought this on yourself. And listening to your passion as you talk about this subject, you know, it's easy to think of the word ally, but the the word ally was never used when you first met. No. How, how do you feel about that word now? Well, I feel quite proud, actually, of that word. I, I, I quite like it because the first time I did an interview, somebody said, how do you want to be called and I thought well how can I? I I don't really have a title I don't really have anything and somebody suggested that and I thought well that's that's nice on a, on a platform you know I feel like on, in, in my personal life I'm just a friend yeah, yeah, yeah. so but but it, on a on a platform when speaking about the LGBTQ plus community I am certainly proud to be an ally and I like that because I think it gives it a little bit of depth it gives it a bit of power to be an ally and how about the word the title hero or heroine that's a bit over the top <laughs> do you think so yes of course i do well I that's do. very modest of you but those of us i mean even for me reading it just i just was thinking reading your book thank god we had people like you oh, there you was know. lots of people wasn't there out there you know there's lots of people in the world and there's people i mean there are heroes there are pe real heroes who are doing incredible stuff i mean you know you've got people driving into war zones to the ukraine and and things like that and that's how that's how, what i think oh my god you've got to have incredible courage to do that and there are people out there well jill so that's you're my it. hero <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and thank you you're very lovely. much jill nelda thank you very much for joining me my pleasure thank you for having me right that's about it for this week thanks very much to my guest jill nalda drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you've got something you want to say we're on at virgin radio uk and i am on at matt kane writer and please use the hashtag virgin radio pride matt kane meets will be back next week the virgin radio pridecast proudly supported by disney plus Full of stories and love for all.